What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episodes three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore and you are listening to Black on the Air. Um, February 5th episode, technically, is what we call this. <laughs> My guest today is Ronaldo Marcus Green. He's the director of the film King Richard, starring uh, Will Smith, which is about uh, Richard Williams' uh, kind of quest to turn his daughters into tennis legends, which he ended up doing. It's an amazing story. It's a wonderful film, a family film, too, by the way. And I really had a, a cool talk with him uh, uh, the other day. So I hope you enjoy that. Um, I guess we're starting off Black History Month. What a way to start it off. There you go, with an inspiring story about a black family. Um, I've always made fun of Black History Month, uh, famously, of course, on The Daily Show. But um, I don't have much to say about that right now maybe we'll get into it at some point it's just been a crazy week by the way a good thing this week though i have to say shout out to my la rams man i know many of you aren't sports fans and not only that many of you like to hate me on my rams i'm from los angeles you guys the rams are my team when they went away and they weren't here i was very sad about that and for a while i adopted the seahawks because i didn't have a team but then the rams came up we made up you know, we had a long talk about it, and I'm very happy. But the Rams were my team since I was a kid, you know. I'm, I remember first NFL game I went to was the early 70s, seeing the Rams play at the Coliseum. It was one of the most exciting things in my life. I still remember it, you know. They played the Chicago Bears. So I'm very excited about that. Rams are going to the Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl is going to be here in Los Angeles. It's very cool at the new SoFi Stadium. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. So just wanted to say that first. Hey, come on. I don't – come on. All you people that are hating on me for the Rams, come on. Come at me. I don't care because we're in the Super Bowl, and your team probably not. <laughs> That's me gloating. You know, next year it will be different, right? People will be coming after me. I won't be able to gloat. And, yeah, my Lakers aren't doing well, so, you know, people get on me about that all the time. But whatever. My Lakers have won a lot. 
Lots have been happening this week, though, in the meantime. Um, man, what a crazy week. Uh, the big kind of stories, which I find interesting, are, once again, we're battling, you know, what people say and, you know, how should people be punished for having an opinion that is wrong? This whole misinformation thing that I think is getting thrown around too much and not really used properly. And it kind of, uh, the nadir of all of this was the Whoopi Goldberg incident that I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, on The View where uh, they were talking about a book that was, um, I think, banned from some schools or something about the Holocaust for whatever reasons. And, and in discussing the Holocaust, uh, Whoopi mentioned that she felt that the Holocaust was not about race, that, you know, as far as she was concerned, it was man's inhumanity against man. And I mean, this was white people and white people it wasn't about race, you know. Um, I think she kind of stunned her her co-hosts. They were like, what? what are you talking about? And, of course, you guys saw the firestorm it created. Um, she doubled down on it at first, but then she eventually apologized for it. And I think they invited someone on the show, and they talked about it briefly. But after all that, she was then suspended for two weeks, which was bizarre. So she can go home and think about it, I guess. But I, in her apology, it seemed like she acknowledged that, hey, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically, hey, I'm sorry, I got this wrong. I talked to some people who schooled me in this and my bad, you know, I will do better. And, you know, I think she even, like I said, invited that person on, which I think is a great thing to do, you know. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack in that thing. First of all, I was surprised that Whoopi made such a statement because if there's anything that's been talked about a lot is what happened to the Jewish people in World War II in Germany and that one of Hitler's goals during that time was the extermination of the Jewish people. And had things gone differently, you know, it could have been a whole lot worse than it actually was, which is terrible, terrible tragedy. And that the whole thinking behind that, which I believe is expressed in Mein Kampf, and if not in other places, from Hitler, from Hitler directly, by the way, not interpreted by other people, but by Hitler directly, and by the anti-Semites of that time, too, was the thinking that there was a pure Aryan race that they had to protect, that the Germans were the epitome of this pure Aryan race, and that the Jews were at the bottom of the racial, well, I don't know if they were at the bottom, but they certainly weren't the pure white people that, uh, you know, Germany wanted to have amongst its people and and that it wasn't good enough to just um, get these people out of Germany, but they had to be eliminated from the face of the earth. That is some fucked up shit, right? And that was about race, clearly about race, you know, because it was based on pure whiteness. And the Jews were contaminated. They were called rats, all kinds of horrible things, you know. And so if you know anything about what happened then, just from the simplest level, you would know that that's what it was. So I'm surprised that Whoopi took that point of view. And in fact, the point of view that she took, I mean, I asked that question when I was a kid, but keep in mind, I was a kid, <laughs> you know, I didn't know really that much about World War II or anything. But I remember as a kid wondering, you know, because I was thinking about racism, like, well, white people hate black people because we're black, even though that was fucked up. I'm like, okay, 
I get that, but why do they hate Jews? I remember asking this question. Aren't they white? What did what did the Jews do that was so horribly? And I couldn't understand it. But you know, once you learn about what happened in World War II and what it was about, you understand it. You know, there's different levels to this shit. Evil has a lot of different levels, you guys. But let's be clear about something else. Because uh one of the things I think people need to be need to understand is that what happened to the Jews in Germany was not just a German problem, okay? People need to know anti-Semitism, particularly in Europe, has deep roots that predate Nazi fucking Germany. Anti-Semitism has had a long run-up, <laughs> you know, a long run-up, you know, to the way it appeared in Nazi Germany, you know, and is still around. It's not like it left Europe after the Nazis went away. Anti-Semitism has is not has not gone anywhere like the way the Nazis went. And Nazis haven't gone away either. Those motherfuckers are still around. But let's not fool ourselves and think this was a unique idea that Hitler had or the Germans had. Jewish hatred has been around for a long time and is based, you know, on many of the ideas that Hitler has about them as well as other ideas, you know, some of that shit is tribal too. I get that also. But so I'm as a, as an adult, I'm surprised that Whoopi would have that point of view and express it on a show as a child. I understand that you don't understand the dynamics of it, but Whoopi knows about World War II. She knows what went on there. So I don't know why she said that. Honestly, I'm still flummoxed about it because she's not, you know, people that make fun of Whoopi Goldberg and everything, they really don't know her. She's a very intelligent person. She's not a fool. You know, she uh, she does homework on things. You know, she's very well read, all those things. So I was really surprised by that. I was happy that she did apologize. I feel it was genuine and everything. Um, And it sounded like even in her apology, she kind of said like she learned something but I'm like well what did you learn exactly what did you learn that wasn't there already I'm I'm still confused about that you know I don't know what to think about it but happy that it's done on the other side of it I don't understand why she gets a two-week punishment for this that's very bizarre to me because the show is the view if ever there was a place to discuss this and to have an intelligent adult conversation about it would be her own fucking show. Why would you take the woman off the exact show where they could talk about this? Maybe she could express the type of thing that I'm talking about. Say, hey, guys, you know, I'm viewing things. I think she talked a little bit about this on, Col- on Colbert, you know, but I think because she was defensive, people couldn't hear it. But it was very interesting to have that, you know, and to talk about the lens by which she was looking at that, you know, and to have a discussion about maybe what are the lenses by which we see things? Does it influence maybe the sides that we take or how we talk about things? Can it be a big influence on us? Those are really valuable discussions to have, but I'm afraid they just talked about it for a day, brush it under the rug and act like this was a bad thing that happened. Whoopi, don't you dare talk about this shit no more. (laughs) But man, if ever there was an opportunity you know, and because Whoopi is the leader of that show, she herself can create a safe space for people to have different, you know, come at this differently. You know, she can do that herself, you know. So I was very surprised by that and very, it just, I don't know, it just seems ridiculous. This need that we seem to have these days to put people in a timeout, you know, <laughs> because here's the difference. It's not like she was fired. Like, remember the thing with Sharon Osbourne, she was defending Pierce Morgan, who 
I think universally people think is a douche, a douchebag. And I don't know many people that like Pierce Morgan, but Sharon Osbourne does. That's her friend. That's what she was saying in defense of what he said about the Meghan Markle thing. And the fact that that metastasized into her needing to be fired was crazy as far as I'm concerned. Once again, it's a show called The Talk. Why can't she go in and they should be talking about that shit, you know? It, these shows are crazy, you guys. They're made up to have discussions about the things that they're expunging people from, punishing people. Like, no, this should be the material for your show. What are you talking about? You know. So it's it's just insane to me, you know. And I think um, a lot of what's happening is I think we're not making. Remember, I love to make distinctions between things, and I think we're. I think people are confusing misinformation with disinformation, you know, uh, with getting something wrong, possibly with the intentional spreading of wrong information, which is different, you know, but I, people are treating it like it's the same, especially with COVID. You know, Joe Rogan was another person this week who, um, I think Neil Young wanted to pull his, music off Spotify, or in fact did. You guys heard this story also, because he feels Joe Rogan is spreading misinformation. But what he's really saying is he's in a disinformation campaign. A disinformation campaign means he is intentionally spreading misinformation to have people believe something other than what the truth is, right? Rogan, you know, like Whoopi, in many ways came out and said, hey, sorry about this. I know I can do better, but, you know, I'm a comedian doing... A three-hour conversation is kind of what we do. You know, I've talked to people on both sides, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Spotify, of course, is a lot invested in Rogan. So, you know, they're not about to just, you know, <laughs> kick that golden goose, you know, you know down, the, uh, down the block or whatever. But there's a lot of energy from, from artists, you know, from people who, you know, disagree with, how Rogan is doing his show and want him to stop doing his show as opposed to wanting him to do better. Like, I think they want him gone from Spotify, you know, whatever. But once again, it's like, you know, are we allowed to say something that the consensus doesn't currently agree with, especially when it pertains to COVID? I'll come back to the other thing in a second. This has been a touchy issue over this past couple of years because COVID has been the, it's just been different than anything else. You know, I think because we feel like we're all in this at the same time, it's this pandemic. There was a lot not known about it in the beginning. Uh, there were kind of two factions that sprang out of this here in America and because one was on the side of Trump, I felt like that was very much resisted. And it also f felt to be anti-science when it first emerged. I'm talking about the people who were anti-mask in the beginning and lockdowns and these kinds of things. You know, I personally, um, when things like this happen, I look to first trust people who are in the position of authority and expertise. You know, your Fauci's your CDCs, those people, I will default my trust to that until I feel that trust may have been broken or, you know, I shouldn't uh, necessarily listen to that. 
fully, I guess, you know, but for the most part, many of those uh, places of authority and that kind of stuff have, have a pretty good track record, though they do get things wrong because, you know, a lot of this shit is inexact. You know, that's how, that's what happens in science. You don't, sometimes all you can do is theorize about something until it actually happens. And then now you have evidence about something, you know, which is different than a theory. You know, and a lot of the information in the beginning of COVID, remember, uh, first Fauci said, nah, masks aren't going to do any good. And they say, oh, no, you have to wear a mask. And then the people who who were, for whatever reason, against Fauci. And I think if we're being honest, many of the people on the right who were against Fauci were really against them because Trump was kind of against them. And because they had to do every whatever Trump did, you know, which was ridiculous. Because there was no reason, honestly, guys, there was no fucking reason to be against Fauci. You know, what the fuck did he do except trying to do his job? That was crazy talk, you know. But at the same time, if you take the politics out of it, it's fine to question, is it, are we doing the right thing by having lockdowns? Are, are masks really effective? I and mean, first you said they're not, then you said they are. Well, what kind of masks? You know, what should we be doing? Should, who should be wearing these? These are all good questions. The problem is... um. At the time that this is happening, it's a bit irresponsible to be, I think, fighting these things when we're when we're still collecting information. Like, I think when we're in the collecting information stage, I think you should go overboard to be safe. That's just my opinion on it. But I think it's better to be safe about it, or at least what we've told is safe, right, than to, just because you're a contrarian or you don't trust the government or everything, you're just automatically going to abandon <laughs> everything because you're going against them, let alone following stupid, never opened a book Donald Trump, who had the most ridiculous ideas about things and following his lead. So the problem with a lot of the COVID stuff is politics got mixed up in it. You know, people started to take sides because of whatever political side they were on. It got mixed in with it. You know, everybody didn't necessarily do that, but a lot of it in terms of how it was expressed online, got mixed in with it. For instance, the whole Wuhan thing. I didn't know what to think in the beginning, but I held open the possibility that this could either be a lab leak or it could have happened uh, out in the wild. I thought, okay, either of those things could happen. But it was if you said that, you were considered a, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? That's been discredited that it, that it wasn't a lab leak. How dare you say that? Motherfucker, what do you mean how dare I say that? I'm allowed to have that opinion. I don't know which one is true. I'm saying it's a possibility. Then, of course, it came out later that, yeah, that is a possibility. You don't have to say that to people. So, you know, like the ability to have an opinion about something became as bad as the side that I feel was spreading disinformation about something or was intentionally um, discrediting something. Those became kind of one and the same thing. So that's the kind of milieu that we're kind of in now you know with that we can't make these distinctions between questioning something not having an answer but having a question about something it's like like saying should we really be masking like kindergartners in school is that a good idea how dare you ask that question you're spreading misinformation no nigga i'm asking a question give me the answer you know let's have some different answers let's talk about this you know let's get some data and talk about it is it really should we be wearing masks outside? I mean, can we ask that question? But what happens is now any of these types of questions are put into the same bucket as misinformation and all that stuff, which I think is wrong because we should 
God, guys, we live in democratic society. You know, we have had change because we asked the right questions. We probed in the right ways. We made people uncomfortable about things that they felt was status quo. It's what we do as Americans. You know, we're supposed to do that. We are not always right. People in authority aren't always right. People who are activists aren't always right. None of us are always right, you know. But it should be... <laughs> Buster, that's my dog. It should be a badge of honor to ask questions about important issues and be open to answers that we may not agree with or may go against exactly what we thought. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And the answers may be the opposite. The answers may be exactly what we thought. And by the way, answers evolve as we know too. When Fauci changes mind on it, that didn't make me change my mind about Fauci. I'm like, he's a doctor. Of course, why can't he change his mind? He got new evidence. He's changing his mind. Of course, it makes sense to me. You know, what we know about the world evolves, what we know about ourselves, you know, all these things evolve, you know, nothing is written in stone. Not even stone is written in stone. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I just made that up. Anyhow, that's what I'm saying, you know, but there is, but let's not fool ourselves too. And I know this, there are also, okay, getting some, I'm talking about when we get things wrong and are we allowed to question things? Okay. That's on one side. I also am fully aware that there are people involved in actual disinformation campaigns, okay? The chief among them is the ex-president of the United States, in my mind, Donald J. Trump, whose disinformation campaign about that election, I believe, is un-American and possibly even treasonous. And finally, you have somebody like Mike Pence this week, who also said it was un-American what Trump did. Thank you, Mike Pence, for saying it a year later. It took you a year, you know. But, like, Trump's not just getting something wrong. You know, that's, that's what disinformation feels like, you know. That motherfucker just wants power. He just wants to be president, and he doesn't care how many lies it takes to do it, you know. So, anyhow. <sighs> I guess that's what I have to say about that. Oh, the other thing is, the other point that I want to make, too, when we're making distinctions, you know, I'm very much a free speech person. I do believe speech is powerful, and I do believe it can affect people, yes. I also believe actions are very important. Many times we just focus on speech or we focus on feelings, and we don't focus on actions and what happens as a result of actions and how important our actual actions. The focus this week was on Whoopi Goldberg and the things she said that hurt many people's feelings and kind of they were surprised about it and blah, 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 all that stuff we talked about. However, those were words that Whoopi said, you know, and like I said, good for Whoopi. She apologized for that and everything. A few weeks ago, we had the actions of Jewish people actually taken hostage at a, at a synagogue. And by the way, some of the anti-Semitic things that have been happening in this country alone over the past few years, chief among them, what happened a few years ago, I believe it was in Pittsburgh, right? Where like 11 people were murdered and six were wounded at a Pittsburgh uh, synagogue. Ridiculous. 11 Jewish people, right? The attack on the synagogue. I think in San Diego, I think it was three years ago, 
Um, I think a gunman killed someone and injured like three worshipers in a synagogue. I'll never forget, you know, when I was on the nightly show and that asshole Dylan Roof killed the black people in the church, you know, and some people said, oh, that was a religious thing. No. And I was like, no, motherfuckers, this is a racial thing. You know, you don't go into a black church and just think, oh, I'm going to kill these people because they're worshiping Jesus. Nope, nope, that is not how it works. And it's the same thing with these synagogues. You don't just arbitrarily go into a synagogue. Oh, here's people worshiping. Well, they're just people. You know what the fuck you're doing. And the fact that even the FBI was like, well, we're not sure if it was uh, anti-Semitism. Motherfuckers, why would you say some shit like that? Call the shit out. These are actual actions where people... <laughs> are in the line of fucking fire. Have some fucking balls to call that shit out when it happens. You know, so, you know, we're caught up in a lot of words too, but let's also call out when shit happens against people, especially Jewish people right now. You know, this shit is not good, you guys. Like, that is what anti-Semitism looks like. What Whoopi Goldberg said... I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, you know. That is not what anti-Semitism looks like, what Whoopi Goldberg said. It can look like that, by the way, if someone is intentionally spreading disinformation. But it is not that when it's coming from Whoopi. And if and anybody, you know, come on, you look at that and you know she just got that shit wrong for whatever reasons. But the motherfucker in Texas, that shit is anti-Semitism. There is, we should not be getting that wrong, you guys. Don't get things like that wrong. Because it's not just a Jewish situation we're talking about. When this happens to any groups like this, we should call it out for exactly what it is. All right? Actions, when actions happen, they're very important. Um, arguably more so, I think, than when words happen. There you go. That's what I got. Okay. Got a good show coming up. Uh... Ronaldo Marcus Green talking about King Richard. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Welcome back, everybody. Special guest today. And I had, you know, I have to apologize not only to my guests, but to the world. My brain is such a mush these days. Here I am, you know, not only met with the brother, but worked with him and I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. He's like, nigga, we met before. You know? <laughs> we worked together. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. How could I forget that? I apologize profusely. but I was like 30 pounds heavier. I wouldn't recognize me either, man. I was. I probably picked up those 30 pounds, you know, with the COVID. But we did a little thing called, man, he came in and helped us out. Guys, you got to go see it. But we got some bigger stuff to talk about. Uh, King Richard, which is, it's such a great movie, Ray. I'm so proud of you, man. It's so good. 
And uh, you guys have to see it. It's going to be an Oscar contentions. I'm going to call it a classic movie in the best of ways, you know. And I applaud you for Ronaldo Marcus Green here in Black in the Air. Welcome to the show, my friend. Larry, thank you for having me. It's it's an honor and a, and a, and a privilege. So thank you. Yes. We'll come back to it, man. Maybe later we'll talk about that a little bit if you want, you know. Uh, you're working up, but let's talk about you. Congrats on the film, man. It's, I mean, you know how rare it is just to be in a certain kind of spotlight when you do something and when the zeitgeist, you know, matches up to things, but King Richard, it's such, it's so nice. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We, you know, look, whenever you're making films, you know, you, you don't know what's going to come of them. Uh, obviously, you know, when I read this, when I first read the script by Zach Balin, I was, I, I, I raised my hand and said, how, how can I become a part of this thing? Because, you know, it was surprising. And, and I think what was most surprising about the script was that it, it shined a light into Venus and Serena's world that we did not know. So everybody knows the champions they've become, but it, but it, but, but, but we didn't know the, the, the Genesis story. And, and those are the stories that I love, right? How, how did someone be, how did you become Larry? Like what were the steps to, to, to making it there. And, and this, this story just hit that perfect window yeah. time in the family's life. And, and, and of course introduced me to new members of the, of the Williams family that, that was great. I didn't know were major players in their development. And, and, and that included their three other sisters that included their mother Orsine and how Richard's plan to devise all that, all that was was really executed by by this by this uh, brilliant family and um, and that's what the script really set up for us to uh, to achieve. So kudos to, to Zach Balin, uh, the producers Tim and Trevor White, who who conceived this this story and wrote it on spec and and somehow Amazing. managed to get you know Mr. Wilson. How how was it slipped? To you, like, because a lot of people who listen to the pod, they're always interested. How do you, how do you get stuff? You know, who is it? Your agent? Is it a friend? You know, how does stuff work like that in showbiz? So, how did it work for you exactly in this in this position? You know, look in Hollywood, there there are the which I've come to know there are all these lists. You know, so I, I'm on the black and Latino list. You know, I'm all on right, the, that's great on the we can afford him list. You know, Spike is here. You know, there's right, a couple right. of filmmakers that are. Okay, so so you're there's all these lists, and you know your name could pop up on two, three, four, five of them, and and I think somehow I I was able to be on a couple of lists. So when they were cycling through, you know whether schedule, timing, budget, you know my name, you know my name just kept popping up, and and I think you know look, I had I made my first film, Monsters and Men, it mm-hmm. made a little noise at Sundance, won a jury, won a jury prize, more than a little noise, and and, and here you go, here, who's who's yeah. who's the fresh new face? You know, it's like right. rookie of the year or something, or Ho- and Hollywood loves that, <laughs> they really do. Yeah, it's it, it's a great window to be able, especially if you're lucky enough to know kind of who you are at a given time to be able to choose something that matches up when Hollywood is saying, yeah, come on, we want to hear, we want stuff from you. Yeah. You know? And and look, you know, from that very first film, Anthony Ramos exploded, you know, he went yeah. from, you know, Monsters and Men to In the Heights and now he's Transformers. Uh, John David Washington, you know, uh, to Black Klansman, to Tenet. Yeah. Um, you know, Shantae Adams, you know, now working with Michael B. Jordan, uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. So, so and, wow. you know, and the list goes on. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I became known as someone that could discover 
talent while discovering yourself. They yeah. are the talent, but but I I assembled the team. I assembled the yeah. team that that has now that is now working at the, at the you know uh, at the height of their craft at, at such young ages. And then my next movie was was working with with Mark Wahlberg, and so I started making some rumblings. It was like, who's that kid yeah. down in Division Three? You know, like who's that kid down there? Right, you know, right, you know. And and I made enough noise to to get on the radar of Will, and and, and I think that's that's how it happened. And so once mm-hmm. once Will was going through the list of filmmakers, because he is so also, so Will was already attached to the film, then right? Will was attached to the film, mm-hmm. and because Will is also a producer, you know, he has say on on who his directors are. And so once that short list came in, and I got a meeting with Will, the very first thing when I walked into the room with Will, he said. You know, Jada, who was on the jury of Sundance that year, uh, you know, couldn't stop talking about Monsters and Men. And so I knew I was in that room because of that first film. And then I thought, well, how am I going to stay in this room? (laughs) You know, I got to stay in this room by believing that I'm the right filmmaker for the job. Yes. My experience of growing up a black man in a certain community in New York. Mm -hmm. Growing up an athlete who my dad thought he was raising a major league baseball player who Mm -hmm. wore the same short shorts at Richard Williams, that that story would resonate with 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 Will and the family. Were were you nervous when you first met him? Were you like, uh... I think I like all the nerves kind of like, yes, the short answer was like, Uh I think I had gone through the nerves. And then by the time I met him, I was exhausted. You know, like, like, it's like, I was so tired of being nervous to perform. And I think that's, I don't know if that's like athlete's mindset. Of course, you have have butterflies. Anytime you're, you know, look, Will is more than an actor, right? He's he's a cultural icon. He's somebody that that has been, you know, decades, you know, in in front of and behind, you know, in front of the camera. He's a global superstar who I grew up watching. And so I... I knew a lot of Will's tendencies because he's out there, you know, and I also knew what Will was capable of doing in a film. And I thought, OK, this role of Richard Williams is is honestly tailor made for, for, for Will Smith. He's got comedic timing. He's got the eccentricity that I think you need to do that. He's got the vulnerability. He's got the acting chops like he has all of those things. And it's sort of baked into who this sort of who this guy is and 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 i and i knew that that will could could really get there and then and i'm also like okay well will is of a certain you know uh he's at a period in his career that he can do anything he wants right so he's clearly seeking something in this role you know he's seeking greatness Mm -hmm. and knowing that your star player so to speak your lebron like wants to win, like, okay, I'm going to go to LA and, and, and make a championship. You know, that's what it felt like. I was getting Tom Brady leaving new England Patriots. Oh, I love that. Going to Tampa Bay <laughs> yeah. and, and wanting to, and wanting to win. And, and, and I felt that energy. And I think, look, maybe it's just me and being hungry that I, I felt I reciprocated that energy. I felt say, Will, I'm going to surround you with the very, very best that I can. Um, I'm going to build this film from the ground up. We're going to work on this script. We're going to do everything we can to, to I don't know, win a championship, you know, whatever that means. And I think that means making a great film. You know, of course, yeah. all the accolades and all that stuff is wonderful, but ultimately it only matters how good the film is. And, and if it's a classic, if it stands the test of time, then we've done our job and everything else is, is, is icing on the cake. That's great. It's funny how things come together because... Now that I think of it, like Will 
probably responds to the fact that you want to work hard even more so than vision, you know, <laughs> like he's, he's kind of in that Richard Williams mold in many ways. When I think of Will, you know, part of his ethos is I'm going to be on the treadmill longer than you. That's why I'm going to win. Not, I know how the treadmill works more than somebody else, you know. He's a brilliant mind. And and, and Will is very, very, he's very sensitive. Um, he's yeah. hyper aware. He's really evolved in some ways, too. You know, I worked with him way back in Fresh Prince, you know. And I could not have asked for a better sort of like on the field leader. You know, he mm -hmm. really knows how to rally the troops. He knows how to keep the energy high. He knows, he knows when things are feeling a little... Yeah. joke he knows when to lift things up he knows when to feed people mm -hmm. like he's just very you know aware of, of of humanity you know like it needs something else you know now's the time for you know like to to call time out and get some water mm -hmm. he's very very aware of those things he's very sensitive to other people he was he was as giving off screen as he was on screen and i think that's a testament to a to a great performer you know yeah. when, when michael jordan learned to pass the ball is when he won three more championships. And I thank you. And I think that's where Will was it is at in his career right now. He he can dunk on you, he could score 30, but he could also pass the ball. And I and I think that's a very dangerous performer. <laughs> and I just like to say that Kobe won championships without learning to pass the ball. Yeah. So I'm just gonna add that. <laughs> Being the Laker fan that I uh one of the interesting things about doing a movie like this is you know, there are movies that you make about real life people who we don't know where I feel like you may have more liberties, but you're doing a movie about people that we do know, or we think we know, you know, and how important was the family's help in the preparation and making this and, and how extensive was that? It, it was paramount for me, you know, like uh -huh. even, even when I first found out about the script, the family wasn't officially on board. So, Oh, you know, wow. I put this oh, to okay. bed and said, look, let me know when the family is involved because how could you make a, a movie about the Williams and not, and not have their support, you know, that that didn't seem like a wise move. So finally, fast forward six months later, the family had come on board, Will was on board. And it was amazing because now all of a sudden we had access. We had access mm -hmm. to stories that you can't find on the Internet. You, right. you know, we we can intimately, you know, uh, create the nuances of the movie, what the bedrooms look like. What did the courts look like? Where were they adjacent to when, you know, when these things were happening? Oh, okay, the drug house was across the street. Where was the neighbor? All of a sudden, the, the, right. the, the geography of the movie, you know, really started to open up the landscape, the visual landscape. What were they wearing? Each, each um, sister really uh, mm -hmm. started to have their own individuality. You know, in the script, they were just girls. You know, right. and, and, you know, and, and how do we define these girls? How do, mm -hmm. how do each one of them, you know, create their own sort of personality with, with the, the real estate that we have? And so I think all of the color really started to, 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 to come in once the family was on board. Isha Price is a producer on the film. She was on mm -hmm. set every day and she could just say, no, daddy wouldn't do it like that. Or you know, <laughs> like, you know, right. oh, oh, no, 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 no. I wouldn't wear that. Or no, 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 no. So Serena would be here. And, and, wow. and all of those little details are the things mm -hmm. that you feel. You just feel them as an audience member. You don't, you know, they're not things that that would necessarily be apparent. But I think they, they, they really, really are. are those character details go such a long way in in, mm -hmm. in in defining what this movie is, who this family is, and what we were able to 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 achieve uh, with their support. Let's talk about your film journey a little bit too. 
because uh, I, I love hearing about this stuff. I read that part of your vision was kind of Boys in the Hood and Moneyball, you know. <laughs> Boys in the Hood meets Moneyball. I thought, that's great. I love that, you know. It really has. And I love your love for sports, too, because I'm the same way. I love sports. I grew up in sports. My dad played college football. I was like... I grew up in a sports neighborhood. People went pro in my neighborhood. I was that type of feel, you know, and there's something about, you know, knowing how sports feels, but also getting the feel of what is Compton, you know, what does that feel like and living in that type of neighborhood? So how did you start with that type of vision and how did that maybe evolve with the uh, realness of the people? Like even scenes like where Richard gets beaten up and things like that, you know, it's so important. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so look, you know, Bo Boys in the Hood was a seminal movie in our household and and certainly, mm -hmm. you know, one of the best movies that I'd seen made made in that era. But the whole film obviously, you know, takes place and, and it only kind of shows one part of, of Compton. Mm -hmm. This family, you know, the, the, the Williams family, grew up in the same Compton, but had a different experience. And so from that, just knowing that, I wanted to make sure that the point of view of the Williams family came across, that although, you know, although they were in the hood, their hood was a little different. <laughs> you know, the, their right. experience of that hood was, was, was different. And, and we, you know, I definitely didn't want to over glorify anything that we already know about what Compton, if you have any context of what Compton in the 80s or, or, or 90 was, then, then we don't have to put it in your face. It's all around you. Do you hear the police? But do we have to do cutaways of those things? Do we have to show you the, the garb on, on the floor? Like, Meanwhile, in the other part of the hood. Yeah, I, just didn't, <laughs> right. I, I didn't think it was necessary. This is this movie right. is about a family. It's about the humanity of this family and overcoming and, and, and coming from, mm. you, you know, coming from this neighborhood. And I, I never wanted it to make it at a get out of Compton story. This is a I am right. from Compton story. Oh, yeah, that's great. I wear this armor. I'm proud to. And when I'm on the court. You can feel that <laughs> these girls mm. are from somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, they, they 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 wear that armor to this day. And so I, I wanted to, to lens Compton in a way that felt Honestly, that did some justice to to, to those communities because there's lots of people that grow, you know, hardworking families that yes, they live amongst you know uh, a certain certain population, but but they're doing their thing and they're, they're they're trying their best. And and when you open up the doors, it's not like rats and roaches that come out. <laughs> like these are tidy homes, you know. Like I yeah. know for sure, yeah, we didn't grow up with a lot of money, but like we had enough and we kept those things tidy. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 that's the way it is. Like in a in a, in a at least in, in the black households that that I grew up in. So. I just wanted to show that kind of love for community, that love for our people, that love for our skin um, that the Williams family had, you know, for themselves, you know, they had dignity, uh, you know, and honor. And those were the things that I wanted to focus on, you know, more than, you know, the, the, the crime riddled Compton that, that, that we know. That's not to say that those things don't exist in our film. Obviously our right. main character is confronted with it, with gang violence, because it's true. These were things that we came to know from the family that Richard did get beat up, you know, several oh. times. And he did, you know, there were several inc you know, incidents with, 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 with members of the community. But that also, those same members of the community ended up embracing this family. So yeah, they turn around fast. They turn yeah. around, and of course, in our in our story, it turns around yeah. a little quicker, you know, sure. because it's two hours. But, sure. but certainly, certainly, Venus and Serena talk about you know that they had support. They had support from 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 everybody, and they wanted to make sure that that we uh, portrayed that in the film for sure. One of the uh, 
joys of this movie, uh, Ray, is the casting. You guys got to win an award for casting. I'm telling you. First of all, the young ladies, Sonia, is that how you pronounce uh, it? Sonia Sidney and, and Demi Singleton. Sonia Sidney and Demi Singleton. Oh, my God. You talk about not only ringers, like, looks-wise, but aura-wise. and I mean, they caught the essence of those young ladies it was amazing but the entire film is cast amazingly like there uh but talk about just finding those girls first like and what was that process like because they were amazing it was a long process but we found it through the traditional casting process you know we had um actually congratulations to to both rich delia and uh av kaufman who were both nominated for for baftas for their the cast uh. Um, but they really went on a long, wide search to find these mm -hmm. girls. Fortunately for us, Tanaya and Demi both had acting experience and like at a high level. Right. Tanaya yes. was in Fences with Denzel and Viola. And, uh, you know, Demi was in Godfather Harlem with, you know, with Forrest. So they're, they've already, you know, at 11 and 12 years old, were working with megastars. And so when we found them, they were just brilliant actor right they you know, were the, polished already. the tennis thing was like a whole nother you know like all right well i'll figure out the tennis but what i need is vulnerability i'm looking for yeah. the essence of, of of a young venus the essence of a young serena mm -hmm. and both of these girls just had that and then when you put them together we did these chemistry reads they, they just they felt like sisters i mean i it, yeah you, know, they really did. you can't make that up that's real chemistry that mm -hmm. they had and they they love each other to this day they were having so much fun on set and and look i'd like to believe i created an environment for that to to happen um you know one of the first things i said to sanaya because she was living in la and demi was living in new york was like look you got to call your younger sister every day you got to find out how she's That's doing great. and we just awesome. did these little homework assignments we did a yeah. lot of body movement and because they were playing, they were playing younger, you know, than they actually were. And so right. hey, just reminding them of, of, okay, I know what you would do at 12, but what would you do at 11? What would you do mm -hmm. at eight? What would you do at nine? And when you're good actors, you do your homework, which those girls mm -hmm. did. They, they, you know, utilize their relationship with, with uh, Isha and Landrea and the sisters to really ask a lot of questions. They're just very, very Great. curious and they did their homework. And then of course the tennis part. Yes, I was gonna ask about that. Please talk about that. It was so authentic, right? I mean, there was never, like whenever you watch a baseball movie, baseball is probably gets exposed the most because you can tell immediately if somebody can't throw, yeah. right? Or if they can't, <laughs> if they can't swing a bat, it's like, come on, man, you never swing a bat. And golf is the other one. It's like, you never hit a golf ball, yeah. you know? <laughs> basketball, you could fudge a little bit because it's easier to be good at basketball, you know, or football, you can hide in the uniform. But baseball, golf, you're going to be exposed. But tennis... You either have a serve or you don't. You know, you either can hit a backhand or a forehand or you can't. We focused on the movement with with Sanaya and Demi. And it was real. So we we hired a tennis consultant. His name mm -hmm. was Eric Tano. And he he literally used to be a, a hitting partner with Venus and Serena when they were little. Oh, wow. He, Interesting. You know, he was ranked, you know, top 100 or some point in the world. Yeah. He, he better, like he's a professional tennis player. On top of Tim White, who is a producer on the movie, it was his idea who played collegiate sports. Like we had mm -hmm. real tennis player. And then Isha Price herself was also a very dynamite tennis player. I mean, people didn't know that. Yeah. The other sister. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Isha was like one of the best and then got hurt. <laughs> 
So just imagine. But was Isha older than them then? Isha's, Isha's older. Yeah, Isha's older. So he was starting his plan with Isha that didn't quite work out? I don't know. If, I don't know exactly that. But but uh-huh. I think, you know, they were all on the court and they were all playing tennis. And they were even all when playing, they went yeah. to Rick Macy, they were all playing. And I think it came down oh, to, wow. you, know, they, you know, Venus and Serena started early. Yeah. Started earlier. So when, you know, when you start at yeah, four years old, yeah. Like tiger. Yeah. yeah. Started at seven or eight. And, I, and I think that's the difference and and your body, you know, adapts and, and molds mm-hmm. to, to, to that. I, you know, my, I was playing T-ball at five, you know, this, the moment I could put a, a right. uniform on and, and I think you could tell it's, it's the movement. It's, it's how you hold the racket. It's all those, it's all those things. All of that. That's what we focus on. We focus on. And then of course, look, there's, there's, there's trickery with, how we shot the tennis. We have body doubles for, you know, for the juniors, we have body, you know, we have, sure. we show the progression and we have different doubles for, uh, for the final matches. Uh, uh-huh. We have a certain level of face replacement, but our girls got so good. Yeah. That they are so much of the, of the movie, you know, and, and the way we shot it, that you can be close and medium close and really be our actors. Uh-huh. Where, you know, if they didn't get that good, you'd, you'd far more cutaways, you'd have to, you know, see a lot less of the world. And they really put the time and the effort in. And look, we were we were helped by COVID because we had another five months uh-huh. continue the training. And, and you know, as as you know, as, as tragic as as COVID has been for the world in some ways our movie really benefited from it. Yeah. What were some of the other ways COVID complicated? Um, was that true that you got to cut the first part of your film? So we shot COVID? them. Yeah, that's true. So we shot uh, primarily in, in, in chronological order, which is rare. That is rare. Well, was there a reason why you did that? Was it because of the age thing or something? Or? Cause these kids are getting old. We got to shoot this in chronological order. We wanted to start that way, <laughs> but we were forced to, because we had a lot of rain in LA at the top mm. of 2019. And we actually ended up blowing most of our cover, which was shooting our interior set because of all the rain that was happening on the court. And so we shot some days of tennis. Then we were forced to go in the house because it was raining outside. And so we ended up shooting like most of Compton because of the the bad weather that was happening. I mean, you know, I'm sure everybody in LA was happy that it was raining, but we had to use our cover. So we ended up shooting Compton first because, uh, you know, because of the, the weather at the oh, time. Okay. And then we shut down after three weeks. And I think that we only owed two more scenes in the Compton house. Uh, uh-huh. But we pretty much shot all of that. We cut we cut that together. And it was great because it really informed, okay, how, okay, this is what we have. This is great. We need to see more emotion out of the girls. Or we need to see, you know, them taking more agency. Or, you know, there were just mm-hmm. little indicators that we we knew we had to, you know, turn the volume up in certain areas. And I think it was I think it was a great, great thing to do. I'm sure in Yuratu, this is how you make movies. <laughs> you know, this is how <laughs> you, you know, he makes movies on purpose. So, you know, right. it was great. It was great to fall into a space where you could really, really see, you know, the making of the movie and, and, and in a way that we could adjust. It was like having a halftime. Oh, okay, great. Like, yeah. okay, this is what the defense is doing. Okay, cool. Now we have a game plan to go into the second half of the movie. And that and that was just invaluable, you know, the, you know, uh, information to have for us. Um, and then, of course, more more work on the script, which was already great. But look, a lot of the scene, you know, juniors really, co- you know, continue to, to get flushed out that whole section. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the third act of the movie, you know, 
you know, Richard is not sitting in the stands for... It's always the toughest act of any movies, that third act. Right? Yeah, and Richard, you know, yeah. like Richard in the original iterations was just in the stands for the final match. Mm-hmm. And that whole construction of him in the in the tunnels and him mm-hmm. not being able to sit and be nervous, all of that happened during the shutdown. Um, and it was a way for, for us to, you know, to, to really show Richard's character, how to not mm-hmm. be Richard while his girl was taking agency. And if he was just sitting in the stands like, ah, it's just a cutaway to Richard, you know, versus like now he's an integral part of the storytelling. Like mm-hmm. you can see Vicario Sanchez going off the court and we can watch it through his mm-hmm. eyes. And, and, and that, that, that whole shape really took place um, once we were able to give a lot more thought to the script and, and those scenes. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we, I think we made the right choice. I love that because even from a writer's standpoint, you know, you say, well, what is the drama in this scene? Is it the match or is it really Richard? You know, like maybe it's a combination. I thought that was brilliant to do that because he is the point of view of the movie, you know, so that does, it makes complete sense. It's like, because we could just watch a match on YouTube, yeah. you know, to get the drama of the match. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not as dynamic if he's sitting in in one spot the whole time. He has right. nowhere to go. And here, all of a sudden, now, okay, he, he's nervous. We established that language in, in juniors. He can't sit down. And I knew that. Like, I had a father that yeah. literally, like, right. he would park his car in the outfield <laughs> at an angle, you know, and, like, honk right. horn if I was, you know. I don't, there were so many different honks, you know, like, move closer <laughs> to the plate or back up or, you know, you know, yeah. you know, cheat in. You know, my dad had all these, you know, ways to communicate with me from the stands. He was just a nervous father. You oh, know, man. and and he didn't want anybody else to see him being crazy, so he, uh, <laughs> you know, he kept to himself. So I understood that, and I and I and I, I think it really, really worked for for Richard's character. It gave Will yeah. somewhere to go. I think Will really loved the idea, and so once we were able to to do that, I think it, you know, you you can tell the story of the match in a different way. It's less about mm-hmm. tennis, and it's more about the emotion of what's happening. And um, and not lose Richard while while his daughter is 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 in this uh, you know really intense sort of chess match, if you will. How much did you and Will talk about his actual portrayal? Because Will is so good in this, he always had something going on there, which was interesting in a way that he's, he always was full. Let me put it like that to use a dramatic term. You know, how much did you guys talk about his portrayal of Richard Williams, and did he? get a chance to actually meet Richard Williams or that sort of thing? Or was it all observed from afar? From my understanding, he never met him, but I think he read mm-hmm. his book and, um, you know, Will, Will really dug into the, into the research and yeah. he found that story uh, of, 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 you know, where he talks to Venus at the net. Uh, Will mm-hmm. found that story about the, the, fa- the father. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and that was great because Will really dug into that. I think Will really, related to to richard and i don't know if mm-hmm. it was his own upbringing his father who came from the military yeah. background black man misunderstood mm-hmm. um, i think he really sunk into into that and then of course will is a father to a daughter and i think that relationship mm-hmm. is very unique and very special and i don't think there's anything like it you know the 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 protection that you feel as a father for your for your for your daughters and i and i think will really really tapped into that for for will i remember the first thing he said to me was the the interview scene where he interrupts the interviewer uh for asking you know too many questions and 
that scene for Will like embodied who Richard was because he was like, I completely and utterly understand who that man is. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we really kind of built the scene off of that very emotion. And that scene wasn't in the original script and because it actually technically happens after the timeline of our movie. But I thought, okay, well, how do we make it work for our movie? It, it doesn't make it any less true that it happened. Right. And I think it's a very important character moment for Will. And it's also a moment where his daughter, you know, she leaves that interview and then she goes to Rick and says, I, I need to play. Like she's ready. She finally taking agency and such a, it works in a different context for our film, but what it does is it really shows who Richard is as a man, how unpredictable, how, how, you know, what he cares about, what he um, is trying to preserve, you know, all of those things are really magnified in that scene. I think it's a, it's a beautiful scene on on top of a a lot of other great ones, but it really shows Richard's character and uh, the nuances of of, of what Rich, of what Will is actually doing there. And um, yeah, we talked a lot about just, not standing off the edges of Richard, you know, like he could pass gas in a scene. Like, let's, let's go for it. You know, this is, this is cool. Like, or, or leave his kids in a store and try to. My dad did stuff like that. So I, I got it. Like I, you know, and it was weird because we never thought about it as dad's crazy. Right. Always thought about it as this is what you have to do as black Mm -hmm. parents. We have to operate differently. We don't play by the same rules because we can't. The rules were not established the same for us. Right. So and and no matter what you do, you still have social workers coming in your house trying to take your kids away. Yeah. And 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 what he says in that scene is I would still do it again because look at you know, look, look at my my kid. Look at they're not on the corner. They're not doing what what other kids are doing. And this is how we've been able to shelter them from that. And I think it's such an important thing for for us to see that mm-hmm. that we, that black families have to go through this. And and I and I think we we uniquely understand that it's not that uncommon to see to right. see it. It's like oh okay, like maybe he went a little far, but you understand it. And that mm-hmm. and that's the difference. That Richard probably did things that were a little too far left of center, but it wasn't that he was wrong. He was right. Yeah, like if I'm pointing out the difference between, let's say, Richard Williams and Earl Woods, you know, Tiger Woods' dad, you know, nothing against Earl Woods. God bless him. You know, he did an amazing job with Tiger. But I feel like Earl Woods created like a Panzer tank. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like this indestructible, you know, force that is out there. But to me, Richard Williams, what's fascinating about him is that he was as interested in humility for the girls as he was indestructibility and an indomitable belief in themselves, but at the same time, a humility about their place in the world. And I thought that was really, really interesting. No shade on Earl Woods, but to me... It's Tiger was just a killing machine, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's the difference to me in those two types of things. Yeah. And, and you know what? We don't get to see. Yes. That, that black father figure doing that, you know, and doing cinema, it with especially. love, doing it yeah. with 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 love and care. And, and, yeah. and the thing that those girls had truly was a mother, obviously played by Anjanou Ellis. Anjanou Ellis, by the way, another stroke of great casting. She's been she's great in everything, but Jesus, Louise's, um, she's so great in this role. Yeah, and 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 I think that was the difference with these girls. They had faith. They had um, 
a mother that was centered and poised and 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 brilliant, um, who was working full time but also coaching full time. Richard didn't do it alone, and I think that's the difference. Right, they really had balance in their lives. They had education. They they had all of those things that I think mom mom really helped to to give to to those girls. Richard certainly deserves a lot of credit in terms of introducing to the girls to the game of tennis in terms of sort of devising the master plan for sure that that's Richard Richard's idea to play tennis it was Richard's idea to get them out on the court but it took mom being not just along for the ride but being a like being the engine of that plan uh to execute and i think that's what you feel in in the movie for sure Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It could be easy for people to fall into impressions of people rather than like these characterizations. Mm -hmm. Do you have conversations? I'm sure you wouldn't use that language. Like Jamie Foxx's portrayal of Ray Charles. Jamie is a great impressionist, yeah. you know, and I've I've worked with Jamie, you know, and I know how great he is. But he really turned that was part impression and part characterization, which is a little different than just pure characterization or pure impression. It's one of the few that's that, you know. But these are just characterization. So how do you how do you uh, convince the actors that you, this is good what you're doing? You don't have to sound exactly like Venus or you don't have to be this person. You know, what is that process when you're dealing with real people who are still alive? Yeah, well, you know, especially <laughs> with Will, first thing was was prosthetics, right? They, you know, yeah. the studio put him in a full prosthetics and and they they completely made him look like Richard Williams. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I want none of it. <laughs> you know, like, like, wow, that's Will Smith with the nose on. Like, this is Serano Smith. What are we doing here? Yeah, well, the performance <laughs> will then become about the nose. And, and, uh, I, and, yeah. and, and that, to me, as a viewer, is distracting. And that's not to say that we didn't use some prosthetics to mm -hmm. sand off, you know, the, 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 the beautiful man that Will is. You know, because he's 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 glows. I mean, he's young. He looks younger than me. And he, you know, it's like so we certainly had to beard him up and 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 make him look like Grandpa Will, but not not rich. You know, like that was a conversation. I said, look, Will, we don't need that. This needs to be about your performance. And look, he's doing a lot, humping the shoulders and, and crouched over. And there's a lot of body work. And look, he's got a great acting coach. I, I, I consider it like a quarterback coach, right? He's got Aaron Spicer. He's been with him for 30 years and he did a lot of movement work and it was great. Yeah. And then we would talk about how to attack these scenes. We would talk about how we're going to do that. So Will really got the physicality and all of those things just tuned. Kind out. of the, the, the English theater version of Richard Williams. It could have been the same performance yes. and you put a nose on Will and we're, we're, we could be the laughing stock. And, and that's, <laughs> that it takes, that's all it takes is wow. one bad piece of makeup or one wrong wig. Yeah. And you're, and you're distracted. You could never you're fall right. into yeah. what Will was able to do, which is 
in my opinion, disappear. And look, I, I've seen Will be great many, many times in his career, mm-hmm. including and not limited to the pursuit of happiness and Ali. But what Will is doing here, he has never done in his career, in my humble mm-hmm. opinion. He is truly at the top of his craft. He is the most eccentric character of an unknown man that we don't know. And he really takes the best of both of those roles, in my opinion, and applies it here. Um, and 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 he's just he's magnificent. And, and it's not to say one is better than the other. They're all great. Those are great movies. But Will, in particular, I think really, really is 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 the best that I've seen him. And I think it's because he was committed to being great. He was committed yeah. to elevating all of those things he had done before and putting it into into Richard Williams. And I think it's in part respect for the Williams family. It's in mm-hmm. part for understanding who this man was and completely getting it. Um, He's had that situation happen to him. Uh, you know, social workers come into his house and mm-hmm. tell him that his son was being malnourished. I mean, what? You know, like this is the kind of thing that Will himself as a megastar has experienced. So he knows those situations very well. And I think he really, really just connected with the with the script and then we surrounded him with a brilliant cast. Like you said, John Bernthal, Tony Goldwyn, Anjanu Ellis. Yeah. You know, the all of those girls, Michaela Bartholomew, uh, Layla Crawford, Daniel Lawson. And then, of course, you know, Sanaya Sidney, Demis Singleton. Our cast is, is, is brilliant. They brought their A game. They really, really, you know, it was a true, you know, team team effort in, in, in getting this one out there. And I think it's uh, we were all inspired by the Williams family and not to not to drop the ball so to speak. Yeah, I hope we'll get, I'm sure, the nominations haven't come out. I haven't missed them yet. I no, I mean, look, he won his first Golden Globe, uh, yeah. which was amazing. He's been nominated for a BAFTA. Look, I don't know if he cares about those things. I, I think he I think he does. I mean, who doesn't? But, like, I don't know. You know, he's never talked about it. He's an actor, my guess would be. I guess he likes gold. He might no, care I like a little gold, bit. You know, look, like, who doesn't And like he's probably gold? thinking, yeah, they're not going to have the Golden Globes when a brother wins a Golden Globe. <laughs> yeah. I felt so, I was like, ah, Will wins a Golden Globe for acting and they don't have the awards this year. Did they email him a picture of the Globe? I don't know. But but look, I just want, I want him, I want the cast, I want the movie to, 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 to get out there. I want more people to see it. I want, you know, I just, I hope more kids can grow up watching. It's truly a family film too. And it's a shame that because of COVID, it didn't get to have that robust theatrical run that you really want, especially because you guys, you know, you're in that Christmas fill, you know, season of when a movie like this can really connect with people and everything. You know? Yeah, but I had so many people, that being said, you know, reach out and I know they watched it in their house Good. on Bill Max. And, yeah. and you know what? They may not have seen it in other ways. It's, it's kind of yeah. one of those things where... I don't know. COVID was definitely happening, but you know, six of one. Yeah. You just don't know. You don't know. No, you but don't. Hopefully, yeah. the film will have a second life and a third life. And and I and if it I is truly it a classic, it'll be every year. You know, it'll be the, those movies that'll come back and say, "Oh, I need that underdog story." I, you know, Rocky, Rudy, King Richard. <laughs> you know, among, amongst those 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 films that make you feel like you just need to pop it back in again and and, and remember what that was like. Ray, has the making of this film 
altered or changed your thinking of the types of films you may, may want to make in the future? It definitely made me feel like I made the right choice, you know, um, made me feel like I, I love seeing us, you know, when I say us, I love seeing black families uh, like this on screen. I love seeing us um, through the pain, find some joy. Um, I love seeing stories of determination. I love, I love those aspects of the movie. I love seeing us supporting each other, you know, without sounding corny, you know, like I, I, I love that, you know, but it still feels hard to me. I watch it and I'm like, okay, like it still has like a bite. It still feels raw. So if I can continue to do this at this level, yes, I, I want to continue to tell, to tell these kinds of stories for sure. Um, and then applying them to different genres, you know, if, 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 if there was any sort of path, filmmaking path, you know, I'd love to explore what, what Kubrick was thinking and doing at that time. Right. He didn't box himself in into one right. genre. He just applied all those things that he learned to, to different genres and, and such an enigma. Yeah. And, I, and I, and I look, you know, that's, that's the, the, the goal and, and, and wherever I, I net out, that's a, that's a whole nother thing, but I hope to just keep learning from each experience, keep building off of the people that I love working yeah. with. I hope to work with Will again. I think we really enjoyed the experience and, and all the girls, you know, like I've already done another show with John Bernthal. We just finished uh, David Simon, George Pelicanos, HBO series. Uh, we own the city that'll yeah. come out in April. So, you know, I love collaborating with the people that, you know, we're, we're building with and, and yourself included, you know, from Amend and, and all of the folks that we meet along the way. Absolutely. We all have stories to tell. And uh, I just want to be a part of, of shepherding, you know, these these kind of these kind of unknown, unsung heroes that, that mm -hmm. deserve their flowers. Well, I want to talk a little bit more and I appreciate you giving me your time. I'm sure I know you're busy and all that stuff. But uh, like I say, you know, just hearing your story is an inspiration already to a lot of people. Right. You know, and I want people to know that you're kind of an accidental filmmaker <laughs> in some ways. Right. I mean, talk about how you even got started. Uh, it's, I mean, when you were growing up, sports was your deal, right? It was. Look, I, I could bring it way back. And I was talking to a friend the other day. I was like, you know, I don't know too many other filmmakers, you know, that have done this, that were eating spam and corn <laughs> hash, <laughs> you know, like, you know, Vienna sausage. Guilty. You know, like, I'm from that. You know, my yeah. parents are both from the South Bronx. Yeah. You know, they made it out so that their kids could get an education. And my brother and I both did exactly what my parents wanted us to do, which, which mm -hmm. is to get an education. You know, of course, the sports thing, you know, I, that's what I wanted. But when that didn't work out, we had the fallback. We were sort mm -hmm. of plan B, you know, which was like, all gotcha. right. Education, you, you education, education in hand. Get that job. <laughs> right, right. You're going to be able to support yourself. That's right. You ain't going to live here anymore. Mm -mm. <laughs> So I, I you were know, you working on Wall Street? My first career, I got a master's in education. Um, mm -hmm. I started teaching. I really wanted to be a superintendent of a school. Oh, okay. My mom taught in Newark, New Jersey. She literally got combat pay for 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 for, for like how rough Newark was. Yeah, that's no and joke. and so I I was teaching for a year and a half, and then I, I I wound up getting a job working in diversity and inclusion for AIG. And I said, okay, you know what? Let me just take this opportunity. I had, a, had an undergraduate student loan. I could always go back to teaching if it doesn't work out. 
And it was an opportunity to work on scholarship programs and mentorship programs for young black kids mm -hmm. in, in Wall Street. We didn't have those opportunities. So let me go. Let me go do that. And all along, I had a brother that was paving this path as a filmmaker, Rashad Ernesto Green, who had gone gone to NYU grad acting, gone to grad NYU grad film, started started making movies. And I was like, whoa, you could do that. Like, what's that? <laughs> What's, what's, what, what, what's that, you know? And, and so I was, I was inspired by my brother who was essentially living his dream. He was living, like he wasn't confined to a desk or a space. He had an idea, he thought about it, he wrote it down and then he made it. And mm. that was every fun class that I ever had. And like, if I could do that for a living, why not, why not attempt? And so that's what I did at 27. I, um, I decided to apply to film school. I got into NYU and the rest is history. You know, I, I went in as a writer producer thinking that's that was the path. And I got bit by the directing bug and um, I started making short films and it led to this path. Like, I, you know, one short led to another short led to the opportunity of, of me writing and, and directing Monsters and Men. And then once, you know, I started get, gaining traction as, as, a, as a young filmmaker, opportunities started to, to, to open up for, for myself. And, and I think, you know, nothing was handed to me, you know, certainly was a big risk going to NYU. And I took on a hefty loan, which, you know, I, I jokingly say, I'm like, how many movie stars do I have to work with to pay off NYU, <laughs> you know, still paying off NYU, you know, you know, post, post King Richard, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't have done it any other way. I think I was mm. free to, to do that. I'm just happy I didn't stop my life. I, I also became a father, a, you know, a husband, a father during this process. You know, I didn't I didn't wait to do these things in my life. I, I just al allowed all of these things to happen organically and simultaneously. And I'm just very proud of the body of work that I've put together so far. I hope to continue. I hope to have a, a career, not a job, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm here to stay and, and that folks you know, hungry for the kind of stories that I'm telling in the way that I'm telling them. And, and if, if I can continue to work, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy to come to work every day. If to use baseball analogies, I like, you know, I always love the players that got their, their uniform dirty when they left the field, they slid, you know, when they didn't even have to, why are you sliding the second base? Right. Needed to get dirty before they went Cause home. Because of Pete Rose, man, he was filthy after game two. You know, and that's, that's it. My mindset was like, I'm not coming home with a clean jersey. Mm -hmm. I'm here to get dirty and show you that I put my blood, sweat and tears into this thing for however long it lasts. I'm Love here that. for, you know, and that's what I'm here for. I, I want you to know that I was the hardest working player on the field. You know, that's it. And I contributed it to making my, my, my team win, you know, and, and winning means it can mean many different things to lots of people. It doesn't have to mean Oscars. It just means making great stuff that stands the test of time. Spike's been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. um, if I could be anywhere in those conversations, um, you know, that, that, that's the goal for sure. And as a child of educators, do you see yourself uh, teaching or in that role at all? And I still do. You know, I still, mm -hmm. I, whenever I have a moment, you know, if there's ever a, an opportunity, you know, when I go to Oakland or I go to, you know, Brooklyn, I'm always talking to groups of kids. That's that, you know, mm -hmm. when I was in Baltimore, right there to the Baltimore school of the arts, you know, it's, I think it's good problems to have that I'm a little busy to do it full time. But yeah. certainly whenever there's an opportunity to do a class. Keeps you connected. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's what gives me motivation. Right. I was that kid. 
Exactly. Yeah. Who's yeah. like, who's that guest speaker in my class? You know, like I didn't know who they were, but they, they came in and they gave their time. And, and to me, it's like, if I, if I could give my time, I absolutely, if I could start a scholarship or mentorship, if I could start a residency, that's the goal. I plan to do it, you know, and, and, you know, obviously got to get enough of a platform to, 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 to make it meaningful for, for students. But right now, if I can just do it through the work, if I can inspire through doing good stuff and people seeing themselves, you know, oh, wow, if I'm a young 18, 17 year old kid who, who hasn't chosen yet, I could do it. I could tell my story and, and make it out there. Absolutely. You're inspirational for the 27 year old too. There's somebody who's gone to school, somebody in a career, they got a family. So you know what? I'm switching this up. Switching it up. If you believe in yourself and you look, you have to have a certain level. Like I, I had a certain level of education, a certain level of work experience. Mm-hmm. I wasn't asking for anything that I hadn't attained. You know, I had, I had a master's degree and was going for a second master's. Again, it was one of those things where I wasn't like asking anybody to do it for me. I was, I was betting on myself and putting my money where my mouth was. Okay, I'm going to take out $300,000 worth of loans. I'm not going to make excuses that I can't pay it back. I'm putting myself on the hook for being able to do that. And not, not a lot of people are willing to take those steps. And I don't know if it's mentorship or those things that fear. Fear can, can really be a debilitator. Absolutely. These things. And, and, and I don't know how to tell people to be fearless other than I read a book. I think it was highly effective. What's that? Seven habits of highly effective people. Right. And one of the chapters starts with looking at your, at your corpse, <laughs> you know, like what if today was your last day, Ooh. would you be satisfied with the pursuit of what you're doing? And I was like, huh? Like, no, <laughs> you know, like, like, mm. no, I would not, I would not, I can't die today. Like I, because, but we can, and absolutely like anything can happen. And I, and I just want to be in pursuit of something that fulfills my heart if, and when that day comes and hopefully it's 95 with, you know, two teeth left and, you know, (laughs) and and, and with a smile on my face, but you just don't know when that last day is going to be. And I certainly want to live every day to my fullest potential, the best that I can be the best father I can. And look, I'm certainly not perfect. I, I make mistakes every day and I'm just trying to learn from them and be better. That's great, man. Such an inspirational story as is the film. I've made up a thing I call time machine gratitude, you know, which I've told my kids, I said, what you do is you project yourself into the future and you sit in that future and you look around it and then you think to yourself, what are the things I miss? You know, like you imagine the people around you are gone and all those sorts of things. And says, if I could have them back, what would I do? And then think about that and then go back in the time machine (laughs) and take advantage of those opportunities to spend quality time with people. You know, it's like, oh, I actually have a time machine. I could go back and do the things that I want. <laughs> That's, yeah. great. That's great. Uh, I love it. But you that don't one. need a time machine to see King Richard, you guys. You just, it's, it's, you can see it now. <laughs> <laughs> go see it. Uh, Ronaldo, I think your career, man, it's so exciting to see. Um, you're just going to just keep doing all this stuff. It's just going to be great. I'm so excited Thanks. for you. Very happy for you. And uh, and by the way, Catch a Man, guys, on Netflix. It was our little project that the three of us uh, intersected on. 
to kind of keep it real. We were keeping it a hundred on that one. Keeping a hundred on that one, I think. Because <laughs> you got to do that. On that one. The seventh and eighth graders, we got you. <laughs> exactly. I think that is being used in schools, which is kind of nice too. You know? Which is amazing. You know, it's it's always great when 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 something you could be a part of can actually help people. Yes. Sure. And Ray came in at the final hour and really helped us get over the finish line. So we're very grateful about that. See King Richard, we wish you the best with the Oscars and all that stuff. And Thank uh, you. and take care, Renato, Marcus green you guys thank king you, thank Richard. you my brother Go see much love <laughs> much love to you thanks again all right thank you